want to uh, take a Bible and open it today, so let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're going to be continuing in our ongoing study of the great uh, man of God, David. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we want you to borrow our copy of the Bible. It's right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 209, page 209 of our copy of the Bible, or 1 Samuel 25 in your copy of the Bible. You know, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg was probably the most famous battle in all of United States military history. Also, from a tactical point of view, however, the battle was probably the worst run battle of Robert E. Lee's military career. Uh, what's interesting about it is that Robert E. Lee's right-hand man, a fellow named General James Longstreet, tried over and over to tell Lee that his battle plan was flawed, that he was headed for disaster, and Lee simply didn't listen to him. It all began when Lee decided to take the offensive when it came to the vastly superior Union force under General George Meade. Longstreet told Lee this was a mistake. Longstreet favored a strategy that he called being strategically defensive, meaning that you looked around, you figured out where the best position was from which to defend an attack, and you fortified there, and then you made the other army attack you, and you inflicted losses on them. Using this strategy, uh, Robert E. Lee and his army had not lost a battle in over two years of constant warfare, but all the success now had gone to Lee's head, and he was convinced his army was bigger and better and grander, and so he rejected, as he called it, Longstreet's overcautiousness at Gettysburg. After two days of trying to outflank the Union Army there on Seminary Ridge, Lee decided on the morning of July 3rd, 1863, that he would try a direct frontal attack right into the center of the Union line. And he chose a man, uh, General George Pickett, to lead that charge, and he picked 15,000 of his finest troops to go make that charge. Longstreet was appalled. He was absolutely aghast that Lee would try this. And he went to him and he said this, and I quote, he said, General Lee, I've been a soldier all my life. I know as well as anyone what soldiers can do. It is my opinion, General Lee, that no 15,000 men ever arrayed for battle can take that position. Well, Lee blew him off, paid no attention to him, and of course, as they say, the rest is history. You know, you realize of General Pickett's division, there was only one officer from the entire division that survived that charge. Less than half the men who went out to start that charge were still alive and functional an hour later after the charge was over. And uh, it turned out, we know today, that Longstreet was right. If Lee had listened to him, the, the disaster of the Battle of Gettysburg would never have happened. Now, today we want to look at a passage with David, where David is also headed for a similar sort of disaster. But the difference is, somebody comes to David and gives, them adv gives him advice, and he takes it. And he avoids a disaster. And then, so after we see that, we want to talk a little bit about how all of this affects you and me. About being teachable. What it really means to be teachable. To be open to other people's advice. And how, God, how important that is in God's plan for you and me as Christians. So let's look together. Right here, 1 Samuel 25. A little bit of background. Remember that David and his force of 600 men have now become hardened soldiers. They've been living like a guerrilla force down in southern Israel, and what they do is they protect the shepherds and the farmers that are down there from the Philistines and from other marauding bands of people. And in response, 
the farmers and the shepherds provide them with food and milk and other provisions. And that's how they're, that's how they're staying alive right now. So let's pick up verse 2. It says, there was a certain man in Maon, down there in southern Israel, who had a property there at Carmel, who was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. And his name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and a beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. Now, the Hebrew word Nabal, the the root from which the name Nabal comes, literally means a fool. And so this guy's name means fool. Can you imagine your mother naming you fool? So that when she calls you, hey, fool, come here. She's not just using a nickname. That is your given name. You're a fool. Now, she gave him that name. But he was a very rich fool, very rich fool. He was also, the Bible says, surly. Literally, the Hebrew means he was hard. He was stubborn. He was unapproachable. He was obstinate. He was unteachable. And to make matters worse, the Bible says, he was just plain mean to people. Just mean to people. Okay, verse 4. And while David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Sheep shearing time was an incredible time of rejoicing. It was when you harvested wool from these sheep that you'd been taking care of all year, and then you go sell the wool, and that's how you made your money for the year. So there was partying, profit sharing with his shepherds went on during that time. So during this time, David, it says, sent some people to see Nabal. And, and he sent, verse 5, two young, ten young men, and he said to them, Go to Nabal and say to him, How are you? Verse 7, I hear that it is sheep shearing time for you. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were with us, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask them. They'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my young men, David says, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Now, I hope you follow what David's doing. He's asking for a tip. He says, hey, I took care of you people all year long. Nobody did anything to them. Nobody beat them up. Nobody stole their sheep. Nobody jumped them and ambushed them. I took care of them. You wouldn't be having the sheep shearing party you're having today if it wasn't for me, pal. So, do you have, I mean, you know, let's do a little profit sharing here. How about something for the guys that are keeping your, guys, your people safe out there? Well, what did Nabal do? Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is this David? And who is this son of Jesse? My servants are, bra- are, are, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shearers? And why should I give it to men coming from who knows where? Get out of here. He blows David off, insults him, uh, 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 spurns him. He doesn't even show David's representatives Even just raw hospitality, which is almost unheard of in the ancient Near East, not to show people hospitality. So they come back and they tell David. Verse 12. And David's men, when when they told him, they turned around and went. They told him all about it. Verse 13. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they all put on their swords and David put on his sword. And about 400 men went with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. And where were they going? What was David going to do? Well, look over at verse 21. Verse 21, and David said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert, so nothing of his is missing. He paid me back evil for good. May God, verse 22, deal with David ever so severely if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to Nabal. 
Where was David going? I'll tell you where David going. David's going to kill Nabal. And not only was he going to kill Nabal, he was going to kill everybody there. All the shepherds, all the shearer, any male there, David was going to kill them. And it wouldn't have been much of a fight, friends. 400 hardened soldiers with military weapons against Nabal and a few shepherds and a few servants. I mean, this is like taking out a, uh, you know, a sledgehammer to kill a fly. I mean, this is not going to be a fight. David's going to go down there and massacre these people. You say, David? Yeah, David. You say, was he having a bad day? I don't know. But he was going down there, going to cut all these people's heads off. Well, then old Abigail comes into the picture. Uh, one of the servants ran and told Abigail and said, Abigail, you know, we're, we're in big trouble. Your husband did this and this and this and this. And as a result, David's coming down here and he's going to kill everybody. So Abigail, look what she did. Verse 18, she went and got uh, uh, 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed out and cooked sheep, five seahs of grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys, took them out to David. Man, you know how many Big Macs this will make? And she took those things out there to his soldiers and she said, she went out there, if you read the rest, I'm going to summarize a little bit. She got down on her knees and she said, oh David, she said, you know, it's funny, I love what she says in here. She says, my husband's name is Nabal and he is a fool. That's what she said about her husband. She said, he is a fool. I didn't know you were there, David. If I'd have known you were there, this wouldn't have happened. I would have taken you in. I would have entertained you. I would have given you stuff for your men. It's all my fault, David. And please accept my apology on behalf of my husband. And then she goes on in verse 26 to verse 31 to give him some wonderful advice. Let me summarize. Here's what she says to him. She says, David, when I look at you, I'm looking at the next king of Israel. Now, David, don't ruin your reputation with a cheap massacre like this. You're a bigger person than that, David. You're a better person than that, David. And if you do this rash thing, David, you're going to be sorry for the rest of your life. When you get to be king, you're going to look back on this and you're going to regret that you ever did it. And I know you're hot to trot right now, but stop a minute and think what you're doing. You haven't handled Saul like this. You left Saul in God's hands. You need to leave my husband Nabal in God's hands. Because if you do this, you're going to regret it forever. Say, wow, what a wonderfully wise woman. She was. So what did David do? Look at verse 32. And then David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who's kept me from harming you, if you had not come out to meet me today, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. And then he goes on to say, so David accepted from her hand what she had brought, and he said, you go home in peace. I've heard what you said. I've granted your request. He said, men, put your swords away. We're not going to do this. Now, folks, what a testament. What an amazing testament to the teachable spirit that David had. I mean, think about it for a minute. He's got his sword drawn. Man, I mean, he's, he's coming down this hill, and he's got his men with him, and they're up to go cut some people's heads off, and he's talking trash. He's coming down the hill going, we're going to go kill some people. Yeah! We're going to go cut some heads off. Yeah. We're going to not leave one man alive there. Yeah. They can't do that to us. Yeah. And on they're going. And here shows up this woman. And look what David does. First thing he does is he stops and he listens to her. He actually listens to her. Doesn't even interrupt her. And ladies, I'm sure he actually looked right in her face when she was, she was speaking to him. Wasn't that wonderful? 
He wasn't walking around doing six other things while she was talking to him. He was looking at her. Wonderful. And then, second thing he did, is he actually thought about what she said. He said, whoa, wait a minute, you know, maybe this woman's got something important to say to me. And he he stopped long enough to appreciate the wisdom that she had. The third thing he did is he changed his mind. He said, you know what, this really is a bad decision. And the fourth thing he did is he had the courage to change his course of action. And that was not easy to turn around and say, hey, guys, I was wrong. Put your swords away. I was out of control. I'm embarrassed, but this is a bad decision. We're not doing this. We're going home. Now, that took a lot of courage to say to 400 men with their swords out who were ready to go kill some people. And yet David had the courage to do that. What a teachable spirit he displays here. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask a really important question. And you know what it is. What is it? So what? what? Say, Lon, what difference does this make? Big deal. Big whoop. I don't even own a sword. So what difference does this make to me? This doesn't make any difference to me. Oh, wait a minute. Yes, it does. You know, when I was in high school, I had a top-notch lady chemistry teacher. Her name was Mrs. Hinton. And Mrs. Hinton, one-on-one, you know, personally, single-handedly put into me a love for chemistry that was so deep that I went off to the University of North Carolina determined to major in chemistry and be a chemist the rest of my life. Now, God stepped in, changed the direction of my life. I'm glad for that. But this woman made a huge impact on my life. And she had a favorite saying. She would say it at least once a day, sometimes more than once a day. I, I mean, you heard it every day. Here was her favorite saying. You ready? A word to the wise is sufficient. A fool needs to be wrapped on the head. And you know, the amazing thing is that she was always saying that to me. She's always saying, Lon, a word of the wise is sufficient. A fool, and she'd point at me, a fool needs to be wrapped on the head. Well, this woman, Mrs. Hinton, had identified an important part of human nature. And that is what God says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. He says, all the ways of a person seem right in their own eyes. In other words, friends, we always think we're right. We always think we know. We're always sure we got the answer. We're always sure we know the way. And we have an amazing ability, a phenomenal ability in our human hearts to justify our own actions and the way we want to do things. I mean, think about it for a minute. Adam was able to justify eating from the tree God told him not to somehow. Cain was able to justify murdering his brother Abel. Joseph's brothers somehow were able to justify selling their brother into slavery. Samson was able to justify hanging out with Delilah when he knew she was a bad Oreo. Uh, Saul was able to justify going after David and trying to kill him out in the wilderness. David was able to justify murdering the the husband of Bathsheba, the cold-blooded murder of Uriah the Hittite. Somehow he justified it in his mind. Judas was somehow able to justify turning Jesus over to to the authorities. And then the Spanish church was able to justify the Inquisition and Hitler was able to justify the Holocaust. And somehow President Nixon was able to justify Watergate in his own mind. And Jimmy Swagger somehow was able to justify preaching holiness and then going out and practicing harlotry the very same evening. As human beings, we have an amazing ability to justify our actions. And amazing, we're all prone to think that our way's right. We ask for very little advice, and frankly, we want even less. The result is, lots and lots of us end up in the ditch, too. And Ms. Hinton knew that. 
And that's exactly what she was saying. She was saying, Lon, a wise person listens to advice and counsel. A fool doesn't, and a fool always pays the price. Now, allow me to stop here for just a moment and say, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I know I went through the first 21 years of my life. Sure, I knew how to run my life. I knew how to do it right. You know, just like Billy Joel, this is my life. Leave me alone. Don't tell me how to run my life. I know how to run my life. And when I'm done, I'll sing with Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. To Get away from me. Don't tell me how to run my life. And I'll tell you where I ran my life. I ran my life right in the ditch, my friend. I mean, in the major ditch. And I ruined my life. And I was so glad at that point that there was a, a, a Savior named Jesus standing there saying, Lon, you may not know the way, but son, I am the way. And if you give me a chance in your life, I'll get you back on the road and I'll keep you out of the ditch for the rest of your life. The book of Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to people, but it leads to death. It's the way of death. And I found that out. If you're here and you're tired of running your own life, and maybe you've been in the ditch more than you wish you'd been in the ditch, I'd like to suggest to you there's a lot better way to do it than the way you're doing it. And that is to let Jesus Christ become the central focus of your life and let Him become the way for you. And He'll keep you out of the ditch. You don't have enough wisdom to run your life. Sorry about that. Neither do I. That's why Jesus Christ offers us Himself. I hope you'll think about that. Well, let's get back. Many of us here are Christians. So what does this mean for us? Lon, I've already done that. So what, what does this mean for me? Well, could I tell you that in the Bible, God says that one of the main ways you can distinguish between a wise man or a wise woman and a fool is to watch how they respond to advice. Watch how they respond to correction or to input, and you'll know very quickly whether you're dealing with a wise person or an idiot. You say, really? Listen. Proverbs, 15, uh, Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise person is he who listens to advice. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5. A wise person listens to instruction and increases in learning. Proverbs 15, 5. A person who heeds advice is wise. Proverbs 9, verse 9. Instruct a wise person and they will become wiser still. Why? Because they listen to you. That's how they got wiser. You instruct them, you talk to them, they listen to you. You see, the Bible says over and over again that being teachable is a distinguishing characteristic of wise people. On the contrary, the Bible also says that one of the distinguishing characteristics of fools is that they never listen to any advice. They never want any input. Proverbs 15.5, the other half of the verse we just read. It says, a fool spurns his father's advice, but a person who listens to advice is wise. Proverbs 17, verse 10, a rebuke, a piece of advice, goes deeper into a person of wisdom than a hundred lashes into a fool. What the Bible is saying is you can take a fool, string him up, hit him a hundred times by up the side, back side of the head with a lash, and he'll still won't listen to one thing you have to say, but you talk to a wise person one time, they'll listen. A word to the wise is sufficient. Here's my favorite one. Proverbs 27, 22. Even though you pound a fool with a mortar and a pestle like crushed grain. You get the word picture here? You put a fool in there and you grind him to powder. The Bible says even though you do that, his folly won't depart from him. He's still not going to listen to anything you have to say. Why? Because he's a fool. That's why. Every time I think of this, you know who I think of? I think of Pharaoh. Yul Brenner. You know, you saw it. Folks, I got to tell you, if I get to heaven and Pharaoh does not look like Yul Brenner, I just don't think I'll be able to deal with this. 
I mean, this is Pharaoh. This is who he's got to look like. He is the man. This is Pharaoh, right? Okay. Well, you remember him. What did God do to him? God pounded him and pounded him and pounded him with plague after plague after plague, put him in the mortar and pestle and ground him up like grain. And at the end, he stood up defiantly and said, I still won't let your people go. Why did he act like that? Because he's a fool. Fools can be crushed, they can be annihilated, they can be publicly disgraced, they can be defeated, but they remain just as arrogant and just as close to advice as they ever were. That's why they're fools. Let's summarize. What have we learned so far? We've learned that our, pro- the, our problem is that we have a human nature that's incredibly deceitful, that's always convincing us that we're right, and that enables us to justify all kinds of destructive and self-destructive behavior. And that the remedy, God, in order to provide a remedy for our problem, what He has done to keep us out of the ditch is He sends people our way to give us advice, to give us counsel, to give us input. And God tells us that we classify ourselves as either being fools or as being wise people based on how we respond to that input. You say, Alon, that's wonderful. I, I have two questions before you're done. Okay, ask on. Here's my first question. Are you telling me that in order to be a wise person, God is saying that I have to listen to every piece of stupid advice that I'm ever given? I mean, I, am, I, I have people give me some really stupid advice. And are you telling me that the only way I can qualify as a wise person is that I listen to every piece of advice that comes along, even if it's dumb and crazy? No, that is not what God's saying at all. God is saying that a wise person does what David did. What did David do? Remember, first, he listened. That's not complex, is it? He listened. He, 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 he didn't get all defensive. He didn't become like a porcupine. He didn't say, well, yeah, well, let me tell you something about you, buster. You tell me something, you tell me something, I'll tell you about something, you. He didn't do that. He listened. The first part of being a wise person is if somebody wants to give you some advice, at least listen. Second thing he did is he waited and he prayed about it and he thought about it. He didn't just immediately dismiss it. He took it and sought the Lord on it. And he said, OK, God, maybe this is complete nonsense. Maybe I don't need to pay a bit of attention to it, but maybe there's something here. Help me pick through it and help me figure out what's real and what isn't here. And the third thing he did is he had the courage to change. I mean, it took a lot of courage for David to reverse his engines, uh, you know, but a wise person is a person who has the courage, if they can see that their co- the course they're on is headed for trouble, they have the courage to make a course correction. I mean, if you're headed straight for an iceberg and somebody's out there going, iceberg, 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 and you say, that's too bad, I'm sorry, I set this course, I was right when I set it, I'm staying with it, wham, you sink. I mean, what does that qualify you as except stupid? Right? Stupid. Stupid people say, I'm sorry, I'm not changing. No, I'm sorry. Smart people say, hey, I listened. I prayed about it. God told me that this person was right in this area. And now I've got enough courage. I'm going to make a course correction. That's all God's looking for in terms of being teachable. That's what being teachable is all about. And if somebody gives you a piece of stupid advice, you have every right after you've prayed about it and thought about it to say back to them, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. That was stupid advice. That's okay. But you at least need to go through the process. The problem with most of us is we don't even go through the process. We don't listen. We don't pray about it. And we're not willing to make any course corrections. Now, that's a problem. You say, well, Lon, I got another question. Who are these people? Where are these huge sources of input and advice that you think I'm going to get? 
Okay? I'll tell you where you're going to get them. There are four primary places you're going to get them, so you need to be looking. Number one, parents. The Bible says, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, that parents, one of their jobs is to bring their children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, to give their children advice, to give their children input, and the goal is to make sure that the children don't hit the same icebergs that the parents have already hit. And if you're a young child here and you're still under your parents' roof, you would be a very wise individual to listen to the advice of your parents. And for those of us who are older, the Bible says we're not under obligation to obey our parents anymore, but we are under obligation to honor them. And you know your mom, your dad know you better than any other human beings alive know you. And when they see a problem, when they see an iceberg and they try to tell you, it would behoove you, even if you're 50 years old, to stop and listen and think about it. They love you. The second place we get advice from is from godly, faithful friends. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, the Bible says. And the word literally means the bruises of a friend. And what God is talking about here are the little emotional bruises that come into our life when people who love us so much that they care about us, when they tell us the truth about ourselves, when they correct us and they rebuke us for our own good, even when we don't want to hear it, those little bruises that we get from somebody doing that to us, God says, faithful are those bruises. If you've got a friend like that, you ought to thank God you've got a friend that loves you enough to warn you there's icebergs coming. We need to cultivate those friends and be grateful for those friends instead of resenting them. And if you've got godly friends like that, you're, you're a fortunate person. Third, men, when we get married, our wives. Now, I know you don't want to hear this. Proverbs 31 says this. It's it's like mapping out a perfect wife. And look what it says. It says about this woman, she speaks to her husband with wisdom and faithful advice comes out of her mouth. You know, Abigail would have been a wonderful source of wisdom to Nabal if he'd have just been willing to listen. She had all that wisdom in there. She had all that that, that incredible intelligence in there. Uh, I mean, look what she did with David. But Nabal was an idiot. He wasn't interested in what his wife had to think. He never sought her instruction. He never listened to her advice. She could have helped the man, but he wasn't interested. I was out at a conference this week uh, with Gary Smalley. We, we took some, uh, it was for pastors and their wives. And uh, he, he uh, was telling us about somebody I, that I'd never heard of, a guy named Dr. John Gottman, who works at the University of Washington. And he's a major research, researcher in family and couple studies. Not a Christian, but he just studies families, just studies couples on what keeps them together. And here's what Dr. Gottman has found. Over 10 years of research, he's been getting ready to publish a book, Gary Smalley said, that he can predict with almost perfect accuracy now, Dr. Gottman, Ken, which marriages are going to make it and which marriages aren't through a series of litmus tests that he gives a couple. And one of the biggest single litmus tests is whether or not the husband is willing to listen to the advice, the input and the counsel of his wife. And he says, if a husband is not, he can guarantee with almost 100 percent certainty that marriage is not going to make it. It's just a question of time. Dr. Gottman. And Gary Smalley went on to say that the reason wives back off and the reason they don't tell their husbands the truth and about the icebergs they see more is because women value connectedness with their husbands so much that they're scared if they make him mad or whatever, they'll lose some of that connectedness so they have a tendency to back off. And Smalley said, men, if you want to do yourself the biggest favor in your life, you convince your wife that you're a safe person, that you love her unconditionally, you really want to hear what she has to say and that she'll be safe telling you. 
and that woman will save you from so many mistakes you won't believe it. When Brenda and I first got married, she wouldn't tell me the truth about anything. How she's really feeling about anything. She grew up in a small town, in a small church, where if you were honest, I mean, you paid a price. Nobody was honest. Everybody just pasted on the plastic and went with the game plan. Nobody told the truth about how things really were. And I said, no, this is not going to work. We can't do this in my marriage. And I set out to convince my wife that I loved her enough and I was safe enough that she could come out of her shell and she could tell me the truth about how she really felt. I want to tell you something. I have been so successful that it makes me sick. Talk about success. I can't get her to stop now. I'm like, I don't want to hear it. She's like, well, that's too bad. When we got married, you told me you wanted to hear it. You're going to hear it, buddy. And I'm teasing. Of course I want to hear it. My wife has kept me from making so many mistakes. She reminds me all the time. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't even be in the ministry today. You'd have made so many stupid mistakes. They'd have thrown you out of there years ago. And she's right. She's absolutely right. And, and you know what, my friends? If you'll listen to your wife, you won't believe how many mistakes she'll keep you from making. God has given you the best iceberg spotter in the world living right inside your house. The only thing is, you got to decide you don't want to be the Titanic. You got to listen. You might even try occasionally going to her and soliciting her advice. Now, there's a novel idea. Say, well, honey, what do you really think about this? Oh, man, she'll think you've been out drinking. All right. Fourth and finally, where else do you get advice from? Not only from your parents and not only uh, from faithful friends and not only from your wife, but fourth and finally, directly from the Word of God. You know, the Bible says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. Now, a lot of us stop right there and we go, that's wonderful. The Bible is profitable for teaching. Yeah, but that ain't where the verse stops. The verse goes on to say, it's also profitable for rebuke, for correction, and for instruction on how to live a godly life. This is why, my friends, you see, a, a wise person engages in steady, consist, a, a steady, consistent habit of reading and studying the Word of God. Because you can be sitting all by yourself in a room studying the Word of God, and the Spirit of God can take one of those verses and give you the best advice you've ever been given in your whole life. And that's why we tell people to read the Bible, not because somebody laid that ritual on us and we're, uh, we really resent it, so we're going to lay it on you. No, 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 no. It's because this is where you get wisdom from. This is how God gives you direct advice, my friends. This is one of the reasons He wrote the Bible. Where can we get the kind of advice where we can be teachable? Number one, our parents. Number two, faithful friends. Number three, our wives. And number four, directly out of the Word of God. You know, Ms. Hinton was right. A word to the wise is sufficient. Only fools need to be wrapped on the head. And my prayer is that as a result of being here, we'll change the way we look at people when they try to give us advice. We'll change the way we view people when they try to give us input. You know, I look back in my life on the biggest mistakes I've made in my life. And I'm telling you, I've got some Hall of Famers in there. I really do. Every single time. Without exception, looking back, there was somebody standing there saying to me, this is a bad idea, don't do it. Somebody who loved me. My parents, my wife, a friend saying, Lon, this is a terrible idea. Don't do it. And I blew them off, paid no attention to them, and made some of the worst mistakes in my life. Well, I may be stupid, but I'm not crazy. And I've learned over the years, you don't do that. That's not a smart way to live. Not, not if you want to keep your car on the road and out of the ditch. 
And God has just taught me over the years, being teachable is not being weak, being teachable is being smart. And I hope that God will change your worldview a little bit and say, hey, being teachable doesn't mean I'm weak, it means I'm smart. And may God help you do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you're absolutely right about us. Of course you are. You made us. You're absolutely right when you say that, that every one of us believes our own way is right. That every one of us is prone to think we know how to do it. We got the answer. We understand the way to get it done. We have this like a big old eye beam running right down our backbone. But I pray that you would take the word of God today and that you would change our whole worldview when it comes to this issue of, ex- of receiving advice and input from other people. Make us teachable people, God. Make us people who listen, who weigh and pray and think through advice people gives us, give us. And who have the courage to change course if we see that we're heading for an iceberg. And I just want to ask you, God, to use what we've studied today to make husbands more open to their wives to make us as friends more open to our our friends and as children more open to our parents' input. And most of all, to make us as Christians more open to the Word of God. Lord, help us to learn that it is not weak to take advice. It's smart. And grant that we might change, God, in such a way that we become a greater benefit for ourselves and for everybody around us because of what we've learned here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.